Hey, Dame. What's good? You know, I was curious. We've been home for a minute now recording remotely. And, you know, I just feel like I've had so much more time on my hands. I've been listening to more music, watching more shows, engaging with more podcasts. And I was curious, have you listened to any podcasts recently? Nope. Still no. I, I make this and I watch things. And I love all you podcast listeners because you make this work possible. <laughs> but all you other podcasters, don't ask me. I have not heard your podcast. I'm really sorry. It is no hard feelings. I don't listen to my own. <laughs> if you were... If I were though, to a podcast. I know where I would go. Where would you go? I'm going to check out Overcast. Overcast is an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. Yeah, I love independence. I love free things. This sounds like where I'm going to have to go uh, step into this game of podcast listening. Podcast for the people. Get it for free on the App Store. The revolution on the letterable. The revolution on the letterable. Hello. Hey. This is Ergo. It is indeed. We are here. I'm Kiss. I am Damon. We're super excited to bring you this third and final edition of our Unelectable series. Since way back in February, or 150 years ago, depending on how you're feeling, um, we've been putting together these conversations about the connections, tensions, overlaps, and possibilities of electoral politics and radical imagination. This third and final edition, focusing on abolition democracy, was recorded live last week. We had the honor of talking with State Senator Robert Peters, our buddy Rich Wallace over at Eat Chicago about the Breathe Act, and we got to know Jay Travis, one of the organizers with COCO, the Kenwood Oakland Community Organization, who brought a whole bunch of great perspective to the conversation. Thank you so much to our partners through this whole event series and now over a year of collaboration, Black Youth Project. Make sure you check out the BYP Spotlight, which has 12 conversations that were co-curated with the BYP team, as well as the other two episodes of Unelectable. All right, y'all, as the dust settles and the fight continues, let's get into Unelectable Volume 3, Abolition Democracy. Let's get it. So we have some very, very special guests that we're excited to bring into the conversation. Um, But before we do that, there's a segment that we've done throughout all of these unelectable shows, and it's been in the interest of building an unelectable platform. Here are the things that we know to be true, that we believe to be true, to live in a more liberatory world, and that we know in this time and our reality are deemed unelectable. Uh, Dame, you want to explain how... uh, how this goes? Oh, yeah. We, we talk our shit here. And so in a lot of spaces, particularly, I think, young political thought gets dismissed, gets gaslit, um, gets gets rejected and invalidated. Uh, and I think we have very valid, uh, legitimate concerns about the way decisions are made in our world and the way structures are organized. So the, what we invite folks to do here, we got a few folks in the Zoom room with us. Y'all can use the chat. If you're watching on Facebook, you can comment. If you're listening later, go ahead and tweet us, whatever. We want folks to talk your shit. Um, So often, particularly in these four-year cycles, political conversation gets shrunk to what 
the Democratic and Republican parties allowed to be on the platform or what we focus on. And I think we know that it goes wider than that. So am I going to go first? Should I should I kick it off? I think start it off. For sure. For sure. Well, you know, I, I feel like I get a lot of space to talk my own personal shit. So I'm going to try to be brief and not use too many of the big old words. Uh, but yeah, I, I, again, believe in participatory democracy. Uh, I believe that all forms of carceral militarism are actually anti-democratic, destructive spaces. Uh, and so if we want a democracy, we have to create a world where we are not relying on militaries to be the foundation of our systems of governance. Uh, and we cannot rely on the confinement of people. And I think lastly, you know, again, this is an old age, unelectable idea, an ergo idea. Uh, I think we need to recognize and name our political system as a bureaucratic republic um, and stop allowing the ideal of democracy to be like dangled in front of us and strive to actually actualizing participatory democracy. So that's my big thing. Abolish carceral militarism and we need to shift from bureaucratic republic being ran by people that have all power and aren't responsive to actual people-based processes. That's my shit. Dan, you want to talk your shit? Sure, I'll talk my shit briefly. Um, <laughs> that wasn't a knock at you. I would say the, the shit that I would like to talk is I know that the most liberatory decision-making processes don't happen with yes or no questions on a piece of paper. They happen in dialogue and in conversation and in relationship. And so I know that what we need to form better social systems in our world and in our culture involves exchange of of conversation and building non-hierarchical spaces for decisions to be made, um, which is as folks are or aren't going into fill out ballots this week, so different from the experience that you have in filling out a set of predetermined uh, yes or no questions. So I believe in the ability to make decisions together. And I know right now that is unelectable. Boom. That's how fire. I think that is a perfect segue into who I want to bring to the proverbial virtual stage with us. Um, when you, you mentioned that the real political decisions happen in rooms through relationships and through discourse and learning from folks. Uh, and who we're about to bring is an ergo favorite who that has been my experience for the last seven years in terms of learning how to actualize our liberatory future. Uh, I want to welcome organizer uh, with Defund CPD campaign and our special co-host, co-curator, of this unelectable series, Asha Ransby Spore. Welcome ARS to the building. <laughs> hey, y'all. Hey, hey. How close are you to ARS being a thing that people call you? <laughs> um, it's like Damon and my mom, pretty much. <laughs> call me that. Um, so, you know, we got two people. <laughs> that's, just, that's how it starts. <laughs> your, your mom refers to you by your full initials. That's not even like like a full angry name. That's fantastic. <laughs> Gotta build a base. <laughs> so, so speaking of which, Asha, we got you here. You've been rocking this unelectable series with us, so you know how it's going down. You down to talk your shit? I'm down. I don't know. Some of the shit that I want to talk today, I think just feeling really deeply like this idea that there is really no true or no like fully participatory democracy under a capitalist and racist system. We're not going to leave like achieve liberatory change until we chip away at US empire and like the entire thing that this nation state is and was founded on and all of that. Um 
you know, I believe in engaging in the electoral process. And I think it's important that we have like that level of clarity about what it is, right? It's like a strategic move. Um, and yeah, we should be talking to people about the fact that like, it's still a part of a structure that was founded on, you know, a very, very specific, like uh, powerful subset of the population and being able to to participate, and make decisions. So engage in the shit, but be clear about that. Don't lie to people about that. Mm. Yeah, I think that that's something that just in our in our planning, and I think just on our spirit overall, a lot of people who do movement work may have been holding uh, over the last couple of weeks is there are all kinds of tactics that we're comfortable using. And there's this idea of like, use all the tools in your toolbox. But the the thing that at least for me, like actually like elicits some some anger or frustration is the like prioritizing of this one tool over all others. And in some ways, delegitimizing all the other tools of organizing. Does that ring true? Or like, how are you dealing with the obnoxious series of text messages and calls that you're getting from people who are way less plugged in than you already are? Yeah, I mean, th- you know, one, I'm getting a whole bunch of calls and texts from Iowa because that's where I went to school. So that's just triggering because I hate all of them. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, actually, one thing I want to, to to hear your opinion on is just like knowing the interworkings of like how mass communication works um, and just like to see just like the, the economics of how much it must cost for me as a person to be getting three to four separate text messages a day, how many resources are being invested um, into this like apolitical type of engagement or exchange? Yeah, I wish I had the specific numbers on on like, you know, what gets spent on on election stuff. And I think we're also getting maybe more calls and texts this year because like because of COVID, some of like the in-person stuff isn't happening. But yeah, like a lot of money goes into turning people out to vote even more, you know, money goes into people campaigning, having their ads on on TV or on social media, on all of that. Yeah, I mean, even just like the whole, like all of these nonprofits um, or, you know, other entities like doing this work to get people out to vote, to get people informed. Like we could have a system where everybody gets their mallet, ballot in the mail and has like, you know, access to be able to do those things through the actual system itself but there's a lot of money coming from a lot of private places determining, you know, who gets that information and all that. I think something that would be helpful uh, as we jump into this conversation and continue to expand on some of those themes you just mentioned is to define a few key terms. So let's start with abolition, um, which is so central to uh, the work that the three of us have been doing. And also just as an ideology is something that we carry into these conversations. So do we have like a working definition that we can set for this group of people talking about this idea? Yes. I feel like abolition is a political framework with the goal of dismantling systems of policing and incarceration that we have today. And it can be understood as kind of like the modern day iteration of the movement that abolish the violent anti-Black institution that was central to capitalism that was slavery, right? So this is like the unfinished business of abolishing slavery is abolishing the anti-Black racist violent systems of our time. And not just about dismantling those things, but dismantling them in order to create space for like the truly life affirming, um, the truly people affirming institutions and systems and ways of being with one another that we need. Beautiful. Dame, what would you add? 
that aligns exactly it, it for me it is um dismantling systems of harm in order to create space for other systems i think the center of that right now in our current political reality is carceral militarism but as we've like you know, check out the abolition suite. I think one of the powerful things about right now uh, is that we are thinking about abolition as a way that expands past a building or just like one space, but a way that we approach political harm at large. Um, it is, I think, a move away from accommodation, uh, which has been the norm, uh, I think, in, in our political history is that particularly when harm is connected to power, it is something we have to accommodate and work around and maneuver. Um, and abolition as a counter approach is saying that we should work to make that non-existent or to dismantle the foundation that allows its support. And I would also add that that happens in relation to like structures of state and governance, but also in terms of relationship and community that the, those logics, it's also about abolishing those logics from how we relate to each other on every level. Cool. Let's, that feel like a, expansive working thing we got feel, feel like we're grounded <laughs> we <did it. laughs> finally someone uh, let, let's go let's go democracy uh what's our what's our working death of democracy i can jump on in there you know I, I demo as in the people uh democracy is for me people-based politics politics is for me, the process of decision-making around organized institutions or systems of power. Uh, and so democracy, for me, is people-based, organized decision-making, particularly in terms of spaces of power. Asha, any any late addenda? Yeah, I like what Damon said. You know, at the end of the day, I believe that people should get a say and have the ability to participate in decisions that impact their lives. Um, and you could see that as a form of democracy. You know, I think what we have today, what we live under, right, is like a representative democracy. So we like elect people, like some people get to participate in electing other people that then make decisions. Um, but it's not necessarily like direct or the most like participatory thing that we could have. So building off of that, let's let's put the two together. Uh, not a term we're coining, um, but a, a term we're uplifting, abolition democracy. Where does it come from? What does it mean? Well, we, we always got to uplift Mama Angela. Uh, so I'm not much of like a quote reader, but I think because it is so significant, we have a little pull quote uh, actually from the text, Abolition Democracy in 2005. And so I want to like let her speak for us. We can't, it's hard to book her as a guest. We've emailed all our <laughs> friends that know Angela Davis and she's a little busy. So we're just going to read something she said. <laughs> but Abolition Democracy Angela Davis. So it, it comes out of the history of W.E.B. Du Bois. Du Bois argued that the abolition of slavery was accomplished only in a negative sense. In order to achieve the comprehensive abolition of slavery after the institution was rendered illegal and Black people were released from their chains, new institutions should have been created to incorporate Black people into the social order. Slavery cannot be truly abolished until people were provided with the economic means for their subsistence. They also needed access to educational institutions and needed to claim voting and other political rights, a process that had begun but remained incomplete during the short period of radical reconstruction that ended in 1877. Du Bois thus argued that a host of democratic institutions are needed to duly achieve abolition, the abolition democracy. 
And so to then combine those two definitions, I think what, what that text says uh, is that there is this creative project and then you can add what Ruth Wilson Gilmore says that abolition is about presence, uh, that there is this creative project we have to undertake to develop an interconnected set of institutions that allow people to participate uh, in the decisions that impact their lives beyond forms of violent militarism and harmful hierarchical structure. Yeah, so so you mean like, not exactly what we have right now. Yeah, we need some new shit. Is what is what is what Angela and Du Bois are telling us. <laughs> so a, a lot of the conversations that we've had through this series have been about the distance be- between a liberatory ideal and the reality that we're living in right now. And I think with some of the other themes, it's a little bit easier because the term of what we're striving for isn't the term used by people kind of disingenuously or incorrectly now. And I'm excited to to get into with some people who have a little bit more experience than us, how they've seen within supposedly democratic structures, both big D and little d, anti-democratic processes uh, playing out. But before we ask them about it, do you all have any thoughts on, on kind of how that contradiction or um, like misuse or double use of that of that word makes things more difficult as a thinker and also as an organizer? Yeah, I mean, for me, I think democracy, one, I mean, if we look at it in, in a global context, it's it's really violent the way that the United States uses the language as we actively disrupt elections and democratic spaces uh, in the pursuit of market and capital across the world. But then domestically, I think it's really problematic and abusive because it, it gives, again, this false ideal that does not align with what folks want. So I think right now to get out of the theory of like what we're experiencing in real term, me and Asha with the defund CPD campaign, we are in this space where we've seen this historic participation in this like symbolic government entity, the survey that they put out every year around the budget. Um, and we see that a, a major significant subset of the city is demanding that we defund the police department and we divest those resources. And our air quote, and I say that very intentionally, democratically elected mayor um, says she will never do what the people say that that we want. As long as she is mayor, the thing that people say they want will not happen. Uh, So we want abolition and she is in an anti-democratic way uh, saying that that is not a possibility under our current reality. Mm. Yeah. um, I think that's, that's a great example (laughs) to point out. I wish it wasn't such a clear Uh, example. actually. (laughs) Like, damn. Okay. (laughs) But um, yeah, I mean, I think we see this dynamic, right. That like, powerful systems and structures that we live under, racial capitalism, like co-ops, you know, the language, sometimes even the strategies, sometimes even the like programs um, of movements in order to like rebrand itself and continue to survive the like era of capitalism that we're in now and thinking about how neoliberalism works, like specifically, you know, rests on doing that. I think the way that the U.S. uses the word freedom to like literally wage war um, is like another example of it. Neoliberalism, just to like define that, like is all about using the language of freedom and liberty and independence and like these things that sound good, using those words to like paint a wall over what's really the erosion of public institutions and saying like, we want freedom, which means that companies can do whatever the fuck they want to you. Um, and not actually, you know, freedom or liberation, meaning like people actually having the things that they need to survive and, and live freely or well. Mm. Yeah. 
to, to connect that back to this local example, you know, this, this idea of neoliberalism being basically this marketing campaign for corporate capitalism. At the beginning of this budget address, where we're talking about the deficit of our public institutions during the midst of a pandemic, she starts by thanking the banking industry and thanking bankers, um, which just shows like the absurdity. And also I think reveals uh, some of the true nature of the anti-democracy that we're actually fighting against in these really tacit ways. All right. Do y'all feel ready to to bring some some new people into the Let's conversation? Let's do it. Let's do it. We, we, we warmed it up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, our first guest today I'm really excited to to get to share uh, more about her work and learn more about it for myself. Um, she actually was mentioned and brought to my attention on the first episode of Unelectable, which we'll talk about. Uh, she's the former ED of COCO. Uh, she's been a movement worker and organizer in the city, doing amazing work for a long time. Folks, make some noise, I suppose. Do something <laughs> for in celebration uh, for Turn Jay up. Travis. Yeah. <laughs> Jay, you there? I'm here. Yes. <laughs> well, you all did warm it up. <laughs> we did. We did. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's toasty over here. <laughs> oh, we're cooking it here. <laughs> it's, uh, it's warm. <laughs> so, so maybe we could start the same place that we we started before. Are you interested in talking some shit? I think I'm interested in talking some shit. I would be all in right. the wrong place. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into our, our questions, right, we have this larger theme of abolition democracy um, and the, the, the political stances or platforms that are important to us that get marginalized or get deemed, air quote, unelectable. Uh, so for you, talk your shit about what you believe in or what you're pushing for that is deemed unelectable. Safe and decent and fair, affordable housing for all. Look at us. You know, I think I start there sometimes because we're in the context of a city that's lost over two hundred thousand Black folks in the last fifteen years, which mm-hmm. dilutes the p- political power that we can build and wield. Um, I think um, cops out of schools, <laughs> which I'm really excited to see uh, Jeanette uh, Taylor champion. And also um, a number of policies connected to anti-privatization, which is a part I know of neoliberalism, and um, anti-gentrification. Um, just looking at um, the ways in which you know, my neighborhood and the city has changed um, due to structurally racist policies um, in my lifetime. And then also, you know, as someone who ran for a public office, and went into my own um, precinct and polling place, and my name wasn't on the ballot. I thought I was mad voting this week. Damn. <laughs> oh, yeah. So how do we have an electoral process that supports folks that are coming from grassroots communities most impacted by racism? Um, to actually become elected and then fight for some of the policies that are coming from the ground up. You know, thinking back to the um, definition of democracy that, that you all shared. So I guess that's just a, just a little bit. Just a, a sprinkle of shit to talk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned your campaign. Uh, and, and as I said in, in your intro, uh, you came up in the first unelectable show, uh, CTU, Co-president Stacey Davis Gates was talking about your campaign 
as a really important learning moment and pivot point for politics in the city. And so we went ahead and pulled that quote. Are you ready to hear someone talk about you? Oh, goodness. Okay. Trust me. It's good things. Hold on one <laughs> sec. Let me, uh, let me get this. All right. I remember Jay Travis, 2014, um, she ran for House District 26. And Jay is like one of the best people that I've ever met, period, hands down. She's a beautiful, beautiful woman um, and powerful. And so Jay ran for state rep. So you go get polling done. And the polling tells you that these are the three issues that the public is going to respond to or the voting electorate is going to respond to. And this is how you focus your campaign. Jay ran on everything that was not in that poll, (laughs) not in the top three. But what it did with that project, that experiment, what that experience did is that it said that you can you can figure out how to change the electorate. So Jay Travis was brave enough to say that people, city workers who are predominantly people of color, who are predominantly female, deserve their retirement security. And I'm going to run on that and I'm going to make it a racial justice issue. She said that families deserve to have a voice in their students' education. And so I'm going to run on that one, too. We need an elected school board. And then number three, she said privatization is a tool of capitalism that actually doesn't help us. And I'm going to run on that, too. And now every election past 2014, everybody running on it. (laughs) Because what you are seeking is total transformation. And every single thing should build into that big, big thing that you're talking about. Wow. Hey. Oh. hey. So, so such, such a beautiful point to quote, and I think appropriate. And I, I want to add a little context in, I want to hear your reflection, not only just on that analysis of your experience, but actually going into the experience. Because myself, as somebody who was in my first year or two uh, of being politically active, hearing about your campaign coming out of the Coco legacy was something that I had such reverence for but also started to learn some of like the real, real dirty tricks, some of which like not being on the ballot, some of the things like I know are a little bit more backroom and like were not revealed, but there was like a very clear effort um, to, to oppose you in a way that I think does not match, <laughs> uh, you know, your actual position. That, like it was clear that there is something against this democratic thrust that you were pushing for. So in hearing that quote um, and reflecting back on that time, how, how does that stand true for you now? You know, coming from organizing with uh, proud, Black, self-determined folk that were courageous enough to push back against the power structure, push back against electeds, fight for fair and decent housing, you know, for Black folks, um, make racial justice um, an issue in the public education system, not just in the city, but uh, in the country, and also just organize side by side with strong and powerful young people who pushed and and won resources for youth employment throughout the state. I kind of come from a space of democracy, meaning that those most impacted by injustice should have a role in the process. And so what we found often is that in a part of the city uh, where there were people who claimed they were progressive, they were not people that were addressing the issues that low-income and working-class Black folks in their districts were dealing with at all. But they were, um, they had this sort of facade that they used to go around, and that facade was um, designed to help them ascend politically within the Democratic establishment while they were not addressing the needs of the people. 
And so that's how we said, okay, we've been organizing. You know, we've been, you know, where we can supporting, you know, the movements that you all been leading. You know, we've been <laughs> thinking about how you fight on all of these different fronts. So how do we think about how to build and wield political power in a way that would allow us to elect some people that would be accountable to us? And um, I also want to say to you all, as you all were talking y'all shit, I want to make sure that I acknowledge the power of the work you've done. Mm. As somebody who's been in the city, um, who grew up during a time when John Burge was torturing Black men. And, and to, to watch you all, I look at the city council and I see these ordinances that are being sponsored now, where they're talking about pulling out money from the police budget and creating programs to allow for mental health support. I'm looking at folks talking about SROs out of school and it's serious. That is something uh, that is only as a result of the bold transformative demands that you push. So I don't know if you all are tied to any of that. I don't know if you agree with any of that, but I know it wouldn't have been possible. We in the mix. So I just want to put I want to put that out there in response to y'all shit. So essentially, we working class black folks, some black folks earning low wages, figuring out how do we build and wield political power to make sure that as we move toward a more just world, as we move towards transforming the system, that our living conditions are being dealt with and addressed by these people who are sitting in office and not operating in our interest. So you get to the point of consequence. Do you keep pressuring them or do you decide some of them might need to go? And that's kind of on our journey as organizers. We reached a, a place in 2013 where we said, these folks are claiming to be progressive. They are not addressing the needs of black folks. They're not addressing the needs of retirees in their district. They're not pushing for democracy in the education system. They're not pushing for affordable housing in the way we need to see it. We need to vote them out. So we start creating independent political organizations to try to do just that. So I feel like we're kind of living in a golden era of people claiming to be progressive, like building out of that moment of claiming progressiveness and not addressing the needs of black people, of working people. Um, and yet similarly to what you were saying about that being that thrust coming on the movement end uh, and that being something that in 2013, 2014, when you were running your campaign, you know, wouldn't have necessarily been something you'd imagine. Also looking at the people who are within those chambers now, how does that feel for you or, or what are you seeing in terms of there being, you know, people who identify as socialist on city council, but more importantly than their identification, there being, like you said, a, a, some sort of alternate or the building of an alternate power base. Um, how surprising does that feel to you based on your experience in 2013? Uh, you know, I think it's exciting to see folks like Byron and Jeanette and, and people that I know have um, been organizers who've, you know, worked side by side with people, come into office. You know, people always talk about co-governance, but they're coming in with the agendas that we are pushing <laughs> as people on the ground and staying in touch. You know, when Jeanette, when the, when Jeanette was able to move the Woodlawn Housing Ordinance, mm -hmm. which is the CBA ordinance <laughs> tied to um, building the presidential center, 
that for me was a classic example of how, if we're going to say democracy, how it should work. It was a campaign she was working on before she was in elected office. It was a coalition of people working on that campaign. She moves into elected office, immediately is accountable, pushes, strategizes, and moves it through. So it's exciting, it, but it's also, you know, thinking about, you know, the municipal, the state, also the federal. You know, I'm, I'm looking earlier today, um, watching, as we all are, this election unfold, just thinking of how we're going to be, need to be very vigilant to your point about progressive talk, regardless of the outcome. We know bad policy, policies that have led to mass incarceration, <laughs> policies that have led to gentrification, policies that have um, not allowed us to earn enough to take care of our families have often enjoyed bipartisan support and often have more to do with who's bankrolling campaigns than meeting the needs of the people. Mm-hmm. We got to keep building independent political organizations, got to keep building movements. We got to stay vigilant. Yeah. Um, so you touched a, on several pieces of, you know, how the political institutions that we have now are not, you know, as democratic as they could be or or as just or or what have you. Um, and yeah, so I'd love to hear you say, like, if there's a piece of that that you could kind of like, do away with how the political system works now and redesign it, like what would, you know, a truly participatory one where the needs of black and working people are actually going to get addressed and where, where we have a say, what would that look like? I think on the local level, campaign finance reform, (laughs) I think on the national level, the electoral college. (laughs) So so, um, I think, and, and those are just two that I can think of offhand. Because often, you know, when we decide as folks that are grassroots folks that we want to push and run for office, you know, you're met with the fact that you're coming into a process that requires you to have an ability to raise a certain amount of money to even be competitive in the first place. And that process prevents a lot of good, strong folks from being able to even come into the process, period. And we already know that the whole electoral college piece holds a system in place that does not allow democracy to actually function. And that is designed to do often what it does in terms of who it elects. So I'm just thinking, just coming up, just thinking about it just right out of the gate. That and then I think organizing as we are all, you know, engaged in to push for the policies that allow us to remain in the areas in which we live. Because when you displace folks and you're diluting political power and you've got districts that are drawn by people that are trying to stay in office, you have a system that makes it really hard for grassroots folks to be able to move into. And almost very hard for us to be able to remain in neighborhoods where we've built families, networks, and lives. So I just think that those are some of the things that I, that come to mind offhand. That's a deep question, sister. I would love to ponder that a little bit more. But those are two things that came just sort of right away. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I guess we did put you on the spot to build a contemporary new political model just like that. So, you know, you're off the hook. Yeah, I know, uh, right? <laughs> 
you really captured it. I, I, I just, again, am, am grateful, truly, um, particularly to have you and Jeanette on the front and back end. I think there is a way in which uh, Coco and like the, the, the family that surrounds it um, is a really important part of the legacy of how we're able to talk about abolition in our city, right? Like to be able to push against power bases through like grassroots movements. So I'm just very excited uh, to have you here again and just wanna, wanna affirm you in the ways that you've been pushing and just know that, you know, your work still echoes out in, in ways that are, are significant. No, thank you all for having me. Appreciate yeah. it. Appreciate it. Appreciate I'm you. So, that question, Asha. I'm coming back to you with that. Yeah, you can stick around. <laughs> for sure, actually. for sure. Yeah, yeah. You want to hang out and stay on for a couple minutes as we keep oh, talking sure, with no other problem. folks? Sure. If you hear something you want to add in to the conversation, feel free to jump in. If you come up with a, an answer, I'm sure uh, all the people of this land would be happy to have an answer on how we make a better system. Can I, can I add one more thing that just came to mind? I'll be really of course. Thinking of course. about what Asha asked me. Also, there was a great example. I talked to uh, Senator Peters about it before we got on, where community folks came together. They're pushing to save Mercy Hospital. Folks been out there, you know, organizing, doing actions, built a coalition. The Black Caucus um, from the state legislature mm -hmm. came to that action and actually talked about wielding power as a caucus mm. of, as it pertains to funding for other hospitals in the state connected to saving mercy. That needs to happen more because often, well, it's only that number of black. Yeah, but if you wield that power as a block sometimes, then maybe we can get some of the things that we care about addressed as well. So I just thought about that. I'm <clears throat> city council. <laughs> i feel like they would be watching except i don't know if you've seen any of the city council live streams they have not figured out zoom at all so i don't think they could even be watching if they try. Yeah, they're still messing up with the registration link <laughs> all right we're gonna keep this moving thank you so much jay and we're gonna bring our next guest to the stage uh, for all the folks watching the Hood YZ Facebook stream, all the Ergo fans, all the folks who've been paying attention to the political and cultural movement landscape over the last decade or so, are very, very familiar with our next guest. And it's always an honor and a pleasure for me to be in space with him. We're going to bring to the virtual stage Mr. Richard Wallace. <laughs> There's that beautiful face. Hey, hey. How you doing? <laughs> <laughs> What's up? So, so Rich, how are you feeling about talking some shit this evening? Decent. I'm okay. <laughs> yeah. It's a nervous day. We got some things going on with the Breathe Act piece. So I'm like both places at the same time. And I feel like I'm here to talk some shit. So this will be good. I can't talk shit over there, but I can talk shit over here. So <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um, as our shit talking commences, what's an idea to you that seems specifically around these themes of abolition democracy or in general was something that feels necessary for a liberatory future that right now is deemed unelectable. Abolishing prisons. Since 1704, you know, the first slave patrolman, right, till now, like this whole entire system of police and prisons has been an effort to dehumanize Black folks, but also even more important, I'm not even more important, but also on the same lens, it's like to... Um, ensure that black bodies do not have access to the system of capitalism, right? Which in which in its own way has been a benefit and a and, 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 and a troubling, you know, phenomenon because we need access to capital in some ways, right? But you know, I was speaking to like I, I spent two and a half years in a joint, and I remember having some of the best jobs in there, right? 
And a lot of a lot of folks that come home, you know, they can find a great job while they're incarcerated, right? Working for Fortune five hundreds, right? We can talk. We can. There's a whole list of them out there if you want to look for them. But they come home and they can't have access to that same job. And so a lot of that for me is intentional, right? It is because they can extract more surplus from your labor when you're incarcerated than they can when you're home. Uh, most of us are getting paid eighty nine cents a week incarcerated. They can't do that to us when we home. And therefore, we are ineligible for employment because they got to pay us here. Right. And, and so that 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 history um, of exploitation goes all the way back to slavery to modern day. So for us, I mean, I think for folks that are have spun time and other folks that are moving folks that are ab- abolitionists, you know, prison abolition is on the forefront. It doesn't make sense at all. You know, they're spending thirty three thousand dollars to keep someone incarcerated for a year and they won't invest a dollar in you when you're outside. You know what I'm saying? And like, so it just doesn't make sense. And it's like, why is this still a priority when we in cities going bankrupt and stuff and you still trying to lock people up? Like, what is the real purpose of it? Um, it's something I'm always wrestling with. Mm. In that wrestling, your work has taken so many forms. Um, and, you know, we've we've talked at various points in that on the show. Um, but But right now, I know that some of that work has taken on the form of contributing to and really having a strong hand in building the power behind the breathe act first off like why did that feel important to put your priorities behind as we've already discussed so much of legislative work to you know simplify what that is uh can end up in the end functioning so anti-democratically so why did it feel important to put the energy behind it and where does your your contribution to that live right now and just a little bit of a step making sure like let's name the basics of what it is. Uh, Cause yeah. I want to even be like honest of like, this is something that I've seen now building up, you know, over the summer months. Um, and it was like, okay, I see the, the language. I see my people that looks good. I'm with it. But I feel like I myself would like to even get more of the, you know, the basis of where it came from and what the, what it is at a fundamental level. Got you. Um, so I'm gonna try to answer piece by piece. Cause y'all be doing, Y'all be doing the oh, most. Man. Like I love y'all, but I always know that when I come on here, I'm about to get hit with some real questions. So I'll be doing notes, note taking, and all of that. So, <laughs> so eat. Let's go with eat first, right? Um, eat is a space for Black folks that are boxed out of the economy to drink, right? Like that. That is essentially what it is. It's like about dismantling, but just being able to provide the resources and the tools for our folks to do some dismantling, right? Um, and so, shifting and pivoting to the Breathe Act, right? COVID nineteen hits right everybody's in the house people are paying closer and closer attention to the things that are happening in the news people are more in their feelings you know everything's everything's going awry right then there was this 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 visual assaults that has consistently been happening i'm not sure as to why the, the emphasis they're killing us long story short there was a national demand to defund from police which has been a historic demand within both movement for black lives and other movements that have existed. It's about divest and invest. Defund really means defund and refund what, right? Like what is the alternative, right? And so some dreaming and some scheming came to play, came into play into how are we, um, uh, how are we visualizing these alternatives, right? What does the alternative look like? And so at the time there was a lot of folks that were sending policies like, this is what they mean by defund. And this is what they mean by defund. And there was a decision that was made at the policy table leadership team um, that we had to do the describing of the alternatives ourselves because most of the policies were left were left short and I think that some of the learnings from the last movements that have existed is that when we create the demand we also have to create the alternative right and if we say defund then we have to also prescribe the solution because what happened after Mike Brown was 
they created the alternative. They said, okay, 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 we're going to create body cams. Body cams is a solution, right? So all of a sudden we're like, wait, how the hell do we land on body cams? Like that wasn't the solution, but now there's a, it actually was, it was an investment. There's a whole other department that just monitors and, you know, all of that. So it was like, no, that's not divestment. That's actually an investment. And at the end of the day, it didn't stop them from killing us. They're still killing us, right? Um, and so the Breathe Act just became a response from the Movement for Black Lives at the time um, that was like, here is our prescription as it relates to a solution and an alternative in this moment. So fast forward, it was like, well, what, is it, what would it look like on a, on a state level? And I was like, well, shit, let's try it, right? Let, let's go Let's go to Chicago. You know, we're, we're progressive, you know, quote unquote. Let's see if this is something that we can articulate into a, an Illinois Breathe Act. You know, it started with just a couple pages. Like, hey, this is, these are some points that, some bottom lines as it relates to the federal policy. How can we create this in, in Illinois? And I think the first step for that was really just organizing the organizers, right? There's a lot of people that are pushing policy behind this. Like, we want to stop the bleeding. Let's, let's end, you know, um, there was a pretrial fairness act. There was a prison gerrymandering piece. There was, there was pieces on, on bond and, and everything like that was already, it was like, Chicago already had a ready-made Illinois Breathe Act. It was just how do we all put it together and come together and push a, a, a full package, right? Because a lot of this work is siloed because of the nonprofit sector. And we'll, we'll talk about that, I'm sure, later. But so, like, that's how the Breathe Act came into formation. It was Brendan Schiller at Westside Justice Center, myself, uh, Amara Enya. Let me think who else. There's a lot of folks <laughs> that were all in participation, like, yo, how do we make this happen? And we slowly but surely got to a place now where we have a solid piece of legislation that we are going to, um, we're going to demand gets implemented. Those some good names. It sounds like a, a Ergo Live show is what, is what that was. <laughs> <laughs> those, those are our people. That's what's up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You already know. So that's, you know, who I tapped was our people. You know what I'm saying? Like, that was the first, the first thing was like, yo, who, here, Tanya, you know, we got Tanya Watkins, who was like the heart in my mind of the movement here in Chicago. Um, Caitlin, um, from BA, uh, Mika, I sent Asha to build too. So we, <laughs> I mean, Asha had a conversation cause it's like, y'all want to be in formation with the folks that are moving. And I was so siloed during that time. You know, there was other things that were happening in Chicago. I could, I wasn't even, I was just like, breathe like, let's get this done. Let's get this done. And I finally had a chance to sit down with Asha a few weeks ago and hear like, these are other things that are going on. Um, so, you know, I'm grateful for growing up in the movement in Chicago because we're always moving. You know, I think that's, a, that's the point of movement is always moving. So sometimes you just got to catch up with people like, hey, yo, look, this is what we got going and give folks time to digest. So we're just now kind of like extending into um, the process of, of, of a, you know, of showing the world or showing the state, this is what the policy is. This is what we're demanding in this moment. What were some of the, if not growing pains, just like discomforts or challenges of stepping into the legislative world of, uh, uh, and that language and that, to our point, we've been talking about how these supposedly democratic processes are convoluted and formally anti-democratic. So what has that learning curve been like? Um, and for those of us who aren't doing that work, what should we know? It's anti-Black. The entire process is anti-Black. And like, and even some of the Black bodies that are within, that are holding office are anti-Black, right? And so it, it, it is, and this is a Black bill that's talking about Black issues and demanding Black answers, Right. And so it is a challenge. We have a guard that's in, that's that's in office that really holds on to like hegemic black masculinity, right? Um, and, and and so with that comes, you know, 
this presence that I had to cut off parts of myself to get to get here. So I demand that you cut off parts of yourself to get here. Right. And so they 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 lean into their into their power in ways that are detrimental to black communities and to black policymaking and a black black black, you know, anything. Because in their mind, they had to put on this suit. In their mind, they had to cut their dreadlocks and they had to conform. Right. And so because they have to code switch every day, then their their vision of freedom is curtailed with their their experience of getting to wherever it is that they are. Right. And I think what they don't understand and from my perspective is I want to I do not want to be where you are. I have no intention of ever being where you are because I've lived in that experience. And I think that was my that's why I have a lot of anxiety now, because I'm going back into that world. And in that world, it is very much their gatekeepers to our ambitions. They have to be moved, right? And I think that we have to then also think about this electorally, like a strategy moving forward. Like, where do you stand right now? I want to know where you stand on this act, because this act, it is comprehensive. And it honestly is an answer. Do you trust Black people? Yes or no. Are you going to ride for Black people? Yes or no. And the elected officials are going to have to answer that question during veto session. Like, is this something you're going to support? If not, please explain to me why. Right. Like as a black man that's grown, that's grown up in this environment, in this economy, you can look around and see how many friends are still alive and that are not incarcerated and that, you know, that made it out, period, or whatever you call it out. Right. And so what we're saying is that for future generations with this Breathe Act, they don't have to exist in that way. Right. That they don't have to live in that way. That investment is theirs because it's theirs um, and that we have to begin to radically rethink um, the way that our, our society is structured. Um, and so so when people <laughs> have conformed for so long, it's hard for them to think radically because they have conformed like they've internalized. You know, and, and I've been there. I know what it feels like. It's like I got my, you know, I got the house. I got the car. You know what I'm saying? Like when I'm with my guys and later on night, we barbecue and we talk big, big stuff. But when I go into the office, I have to, you know, I'm mask wearing. I'm code switching for 12 hours a day. And and so we're saying with this, like this Breathe Act, is, it's a cultural shift as well. We don't want to live like that. We want Black identities to be whole and in their fullness, regardless of what the exterior looks like. Right. Um, and so. Yeah, so that hopefully that answers what you're saying. What well, and I love what you said about the um the leveraging of people on the legislative floor having to make that that statement because so much of the maneuverings and the anti-democratic mechanisms are so that people aren't ever in that position to have to actually answer yes or no. Uh, and they can obscure it and hide it and and push the buck on that. In in that work and, and then as you've come back to to hearing more and more and talking with Asha about the other stuff going on right now, what do you feel like a legislative body could look like? And it could be as specific or vague as you want, where it wouldn't be so difficult to have people have to answer that question. Like, like how can we reconfigure that piece of the, of the structure? You know, I think for all of the critique that is given to electoral politics, democracy essentially means that if a decision is made that impacts you, you have a right to play a role in how that decision is made. Right. That's a that's how I, I'm, you know, how I articulate it to, to my folks. Right. And so we need a more diverse electorate. Right. Like we need a third party. We need a lot of things in this city to really move 
the needle forward because we have progressives in office, but they don't have people backing them. And the way the democracy works is that you need the majority of people to move to your line, right? Which is one of the challenges with, that I've seen within movement and et cetera, et cetera, is that we have to begin to step outside of our silos and begin to move people to our line, right? And, and so that means being engaged in contentious conversations with folks who do not believe in the things that you believe in. <laughs> to get to there, there has to be a pivot from turning to state, right? So right now, turning to state, this is like a state policy. There has to be a pivot that also says we face community and get deep commitment from the communities that we organize with and organize in to support these visions. And that also, and, and I think the biggest part of that is that that means that sometimes your vision, what we may hold as abolitionists who have been taught this, these, da, 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 it may look a little different when other people include their vision in it. See, a lot of times people, we want to lead with a vision and have people follow that vision without having their imprint on the vision, right? And then there's, and then there's tension in relationship to that. So I think getting to a place where our, our, our electorate is made whole, right? I guess you would call it our, our, our elected officials and legislators are made whole. It requires us to both produce alternatives, face community, create buy-in, right, on the demands that, we're, that, that we think are, are necessary, create visions with community, and then also support community members into office, right? Yeah. Um, so we're going to ask you a question of like, why are people so you know, angry and apathetic about the system. And I feel like you kind of answered that question um, in a really thorough and, and powerful way and talking about all of the ways that the system is anti-Black. Um, and even when, you know, Black or marginalized folks get into office, they have to, um, you know, conform in these different ways. And so I'm curious just, yeah, how you reconcile the organizing that you're doing with that truth and if you're working with folks who are angry and apathetic to the point that it feels like we shouldn't actually be engaging in, in these political systems at all, like what do you say to folks and what is necessary when you're talking about the work that you're trying to do and how that's different from, you know, the folks that have had to, to leave pieces of themselves behind, what do we have to do differently so that we're not, that we don't become co-opted or that it doesn't just turn into you know, I don't know, the kind of like empty talk that we see so much. In this yeah. Situation. So for me, the most evident barrier to participating in democracy right now is like anti-Black capitalism. Um, I didn't vote until my 20s. Like, where's my son? Hold on. He's right there. On the we couch. got a feature. <laughs> I got a feature. You want to come say hi? <laughs> it's right there on the thing. Ask my mom. Just wanted the phone, man. You don't yeah, have to I mean, he, this door was locked. I have no idea how that book got in here, but it's okay. All right. All right, Spider-Man. All right. All right. So, you know, one of the most, you know, most evident barriers to participate in the democracy in my, in my assessment is anti-Black capitalism. And so I didn't vote until I was like well into my 20s, way into my 20s. Um, questions like for me that were resonate, resonating were, where am I going to sleep? Whose house can I go to to get a plate of food? Uh, what lick do I got to hit to come up for the night? Those were my priorities. Voting was not my priority, right? So for many, for me in that moment, the greatest barrier was being born in the system that demands capital um, for you to survive without a pathway of earning wages in America, right? So I was stuck in kind of like a system that was, just, it just didn't make sense. Every day I had to hustle, come up on a lick or whatever in order to get by. And Mayor Lightfoot, <laughs> I'm gonna bring her name up, knows that. 
Right. Mayor Blackford knows that. Why else would she send tanks and U.S. Marshals to the south and west side of Chicago? Right. During a global pandemic to enforce dispersal orders. Right. Why would why would she do that if she was actually threatened, if she knew that these people would vote to move her out? Right. She's not threatened. She has no fear of repercussion because she her job at this point is to ensure that the conditions in those communities stay at the level of survival. And when we stay at the level of survival, the options like, I mean, yeah, I really I want to vote. But if it's between A, B and C, like I got to get there. Right. So a lot of the work that we do at EAT and I get the, you know, the, the challenge of being in the nonprofit industrial complex. Right. Is that is that I have I use this tool as a, as an opportunity to bring the resources in and the tools in the community to raise the conditions to a point where people can get out to vote. So it's like if they if they want to, if that's what you want to do and you want to vote, let's remove as many barriers as possible to you actually engaging in democracy. Right. And I think that there's also a liveness in being able to engage in democracy. A lot of these elected officials that have been, you know, they bring up the, the democratically elected states where, you know, Detroit, Chicago, Gary, Indiana, places like that. Like our communities have been ravaged. I feel the tension, you know, from folks that are like, we shouldn't engage in the electoral system because it's 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 problematic in, in whatnot ways. To that point that Rich was just bringing up, I'm curious for the other folks on the call, like, Ash, what what do you say when people present that apathy? Dane, what do you say? Jay, what do you say? And even not just to externally, but for yourselves also, how do you reconcile that? Because that's something I, you know, struggle with too. Um, again, so the more and more I get into uh, restorative and transformative practice, uh, the more and more the, the, the language and vocabulary of abuse and harm become really central to me. Uh, and so for me, particularly now as one of those crazy young people that like, has these political demands that in every time we are trying to galvanize people, we hear them being quelled or cooled or um, the, the righteous energy um, is usually pushed back with this go vote. Like, let's not talk about the harm that you're talking about. Go put someone else in power in this very narrow subset of choices. And then they are not going to then do the thing that you're talking about, right? Like this continuation of passing the buck of gaslighting uh, of, of invalidating people's real experiences. Uh, I start with a place of, of validating that, uh, of saying, yes, this is a very harmful system. And if you want to participate in a form of harm reduction or participation as a way to organize or build power or to work towards some type of shift to make transformation more possible, that is definitely real. Uh, but there is a mythology um, I think similar to the way we talk about policing, uh, that we talk about the electoral arena as this neutral or beneficial space. Um, and for me, it's let's first talk about the harm and know that there is a harm so that when you're going in there, you can go in there with power. Because at a statistical level, um, it, it is a mythology. There is no responsiveness to an unorganized voter, right? There is only a responsiveness to donor capital and to organized interests. And if 90% of people want something and they're not organized in a certain type of way, i.e. like gun legislation or things around healthcare, we have seen statistically at every level of government, there is no response to people. Uh, and so for me, when folks have that discouragement, I just go into it like, hell yeah, like I don't fuck with it either. Um, but, you know, there are these, you know, I didn't like school either, but there are ways in which I had to, I didn't have to, but, but I, I was pushed towards participation in ways that I, you know, negotiate. No, I wanted to lift up what Richard said about um, addressing the, the living conditions that folks are dealing with. 
you know, through organizing and then showing the connection between what has caused those circumstances and some of those legislative bodies that we need to impact. So if we're talking about not having enough safe and decent affordable housing, not being able to earn enough where we can put, you know, a roof over our head and be able to, to eat and survive. If, if we're talking about stopping mass incarceration and we're organizing to do these things, we're going to bump up against people that are sitting in these positions that are making decisions that impact those real living conditions that we're dealing with. So I, I agree with you. How, do, how are we organizing to make sure that we're addressing the real needs of our communities? And then how are we drawing out the connections between what's causing those problems and the people that are sitting in office that are not being accountable for addressing those issues? I, the only other thing I was thinking about when a brother was talking, when he mentioned um, people having to go in and folks are in there feeling like they had to leave themselves behind. Some folks are in there too, representing the interests of those folks that bankroll those campaigns. So that's a that's a real piece that we have to contend with too. Getting the Damon's point, you know, what decisions are being made on our behalf? Which ones are causing harm? Which ones of these folks are not being accountable? And then whose interests are they operating in? So that we can use that as we politicize our people to decide which ones of them we gotta, you know, vote out. Yeah. That's a great like starting place criteria there too. Like here's where we start the conversation. And I was going to say, I think one of the most important things is like, so I didn't come into this work whole folks. No, I was, I was out there, you know? So somebody was patient with me that sat there with me through my contradiction. So I could learn. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a work in progress now. I'm still, you know, struggling and trying to figure all this, you know what I mean? And so sometimes we, we, we come at this work through a lens of like ideological purity it almost operates like the church, like the church that we ran from. A lot of us ran from was like, if you don't follow these 12 principles and you can't come into our church. And what happens is we, we slowly and slowly become more and more siloed. The commitment, I think, for for organizers in this moment is to do the long walk. Like somebody walk, man, like, bro, I was I was hurting my people and willing to hurt myself at any at any given minute. I had to get past that to get at radical about anything else in the world. I had to look at me in the mirror and see something that was worth it. And that took a long time. And so oftentimes we come into community and we're just quick to throw labels on folks like op, you know what I'm saying? Not understanding that, you know, socialization played a part in how they are and how they're thinking in this moment. Part of it is that just like, I think it's committing to the walk with your people. Who are your people? Who is your audience? Are you committed to walk? with your audience. Sometimes I'd be crawling with them like, come on, Joe. Like I said, I said, like, you know, and just be committed to them in their transformation. I think that's why we call it equity and transformation is like that. I know people can transform because I transform. I'm committed to that walk. And I think that's the other part of the work when it comes to democracy and moving a majority to your line is that they got to see the commitment past the ideology. And, and it's not just like I'm invested in you because you carry the same ideology I got. It's like, I'm invested in you because you are my comrade, you're my people, right? And so I understand the wounds that this, this capitalist system has, has, has put on us. And so I'm willing to walk with you through this process. And a lot of people don't listen to what you say, they watch what you do. You know what I'm saying? And so 
some of the folks that we've been organizing with have like literally just watched like what is this brother like he's still in my something out the cookie jar you know what i'm saying like he's they, they watching to see like is there a contradiction is the poverty pimp still real you know what i'm saying and so it's equally my on me to like walk with the people towards this 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 destination that's really powerful. So we, we're going to invite our last guest to the stage. Rich, appreciate you so much for being here. Feel free to stick on, but I know you're, you're Papa Rich over there <laughs> as well. <laughs> so, so we understand what you got. <laughs> did, uh, did, did he get did the he phone get on? Needed on the phone? <laughs> yes. And, and let me, and let me, I want to say one thing before I jump off, just the, the Illinois Breathe Act. If anybody needs a copy, let me know. There's four sections in it. I forgot because I know Demond mentioned he wanted to know exactly what's in it. The first section is around creating systems of accountability and transparency around policing. The next section is section two is on demilitarization and reducing police power and interaction. Section three is ending the carceral state and repairing legal system harms. And section four is about redistributing resources to build healthy, sustainable and equitable communities for black people in this moment. Um, I mean, it covers everything, including, uh, I don't want to go through all of it right now, but. Um, if there's a public link, we can put it in the show notes also if people want access. To okay, it. So I'll send you a link. All right. Cool. Thank you so much. Thanks for rocking with yeah, us, Rich. Much love. Thank so you. we have one more guest, uh, which I'm really excited to bring on. We've had this, you know, very nuanced, but obviously critical look at the electoral arena and the ways in which elected officials move. Um, and in this series, we've been trying to have that conversation in conversation <laughs> with folks who are engaged in the electoral arena. So I want to welcome to the stage uh, Illinois State Senator, Mr. Robert Peter. <laughs> What's up, y'all? I, so I, I, I just want to say an intense conversation for the last half hour. And what I do know is people do not like what I do for my life. That's a very easy fact. I was about to say, it's a little mean we put you last. Like, we, they'd be like we're just going to beat up on your profession like, for an hour. People, the legislator, these dumb motherfuckers, <laughs> they suck. Fuck them. And then me just being like, and uh, yeah, I'm State Senator Robert Peters. I'm here to talk about being a State Senator. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I want you to know I'm going to be the best. <laughs> Before we get any more serious, that's hilarious. Uh, do you watch The Office at all? You're asking me that? Yes, I've, yes, I've watched That's not the hardest question we're going to ask you. For. I was like, I was like, what is this question? Do you have to push back against the stigma against state senators because of this? Do people all the time? Oh, like, that's <laughs> bogus, though. You don't need to go there. That's just. <laughs> yeah, when I first got in here, I would be like, you know, people would be like, hey, Sender, and my friends would go, hey, Sender. I'd be like, yes, <laughs> thank you so much for reminding me, uh, you know, <sighs> keeping me humble is really good. So, yeah, that, that was at least a good seven okay, months. Okay, cool. So. Well, we want to make sure people know that the state legislature is a real consequence. So we're, we're glad that you're in there. And we want to start off, we give you a chance uh, to talk your shit a little bit. So you got elected. And, and mm -hmm. I've seen and, and watched you move in ways that uh, probably are deemed unelectable. Uh, so in this notion, uh, were there parts in your platform that you pushed for that you originally thought were unelectable that have now seemed to be disproven? Uh, and now that you're in there, do they feel like there are further steps that you could or should take that there's not as much permissive space for where you would like to go further in terms of things that are deemed unelectable? 
That's a great question. Um, so when I first got in here, uh, you know, I got appointed to the seat, um, which is a whole lot of things that, you know, both emotionally and politically, but not only that, I won an election and I said, I'm going to run on my values when it comes to, you know, what I like to say is public safety. And the reason why I say that is I don't think the right should have any ownership over our sense of safety, our idea of safety, our concept of safety. And I'm not going to cede that ground to a bunch of right wingers. But what I do know is that my view and vision on safety is unelectable, right? Like the idea is we don't need closed circuit television on the corner. We don't need blue lights roaming our streets. What we need is good schools. We need is healthcare. We need a good job and a union. Real safety for people isn't policing it's not incarceration. It's actually investing in them and their sense of community. And so I knew that was like going to be a challenge of how do I actually talk to people broadly about it. And it was after knocking on doors and realizing that at the end of the day, when you ask people what it meant for them to have a safe, safe neighborhood, safe community, to have safety in their life, they would tell you. If you knock on doors and you actually talk to people, they'll tell you exactly what they need. And that's the thing that you need to be pushing, but it, 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 it can be a little, you know, I, I'm like, I'm shocked. I'm here every day. I'm like, I can't believe it. I'm pretty convinced I'm going to get a, another primary. I'm sure someone's going to run to my right. Uh, you know, I represent the gold coast at the top along the lakefront, all the way down to the Indiana border. It's a large district. It's extremely diverse. I mean that in a political sense. And so there's certain folks in the district, say, for instance, when looting was happening, where they viewed it in a very um, carceral manner. You know, for me, I, I tried to say, why? Why does somebody steal something? I said, it's like if you're a miner and you're constantly working the mine and then you decide to do a run on the mine that's been oppressing you and giving you little pay because you feel like you deserve to have that commodity. That is, that is, that is literally a behavior. That's an understood behavior. But I had to talk like that to a lot of people. And my, my general thinking is at some point they're going to finally be like, this guy is too much and he's got to go. Um, so I'm just, I feel very lucky and privileged to be here, but to operate from the idea that I need to invite the primary to try to take me out and keep pushing myself um, when it comes to this, you know, sort of expansive new reimagining of what it means to have safety uh, and to translate abolition so that it relates to talking to someone in South Shore and say, you know, you actually, these things actually line up. Like here's a way that they'll line up for you. And let me help, let me help move you there by having this conversation. It's really interesting what you're saying about inviting that primary through your work. I'm curious that's on the kind of election end within the processes of state legislature. Um, how do you think about that of with the position that I have and this feeling of like, this isn't, you know, there are lifers in that building and it sounds like that's not the ambition that you're striving for If that, you know, you're here to do some work. What does that mean in terms of how you communicate with the people who are like essentially your colleagues at this point? So I come from organizing and it's the idea of having, the one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone, having the relationship with someone. There are some people I will absolutely disagree with, but I'll have a good relationship with for the simple fact 
that because I have that good relationship, maybe one time on a bill, they'll support it um, because we can have that relationship. So it's, it's a little complicated because I get real, I get pissed and I have a very, I have a horrible temper um, and I'm trying to manage that temper. Uh, thank you to therapy. Shout out. <laughs> Shout out to my therapist uh, where I'm like, if you're watching this, but the, the, the thing to me is it's about the relationship building and there are people in there for a long time. I try to be careful from tearing them down. Like I put the judgment on myself a lot. Like I want to end cash bond. You know, I want to end, you know, the way we do use of force. I want to bring more accountability in terms of policing, militarization of police, uh, mental health first responders. There are some people who live in more conservative districts than I do, who what they are telling me is most likely a reality. And so my job is to say, working with organizations, like it's cool that you've been building in, in the district, in my district for years, but we need to start building that power in a collar county. And with the ending money bond, we've held town halls in DuPage and Kane County. And we said, no matter what you believe, we want you to join this town hall. You, we want you to come on and ask us all the questions. Ask us if we end cash bond, if someone's going to come out and you know, commit some violent act. We want you to ask that so that we can talk to you and move you during this town hall. And then you could go out and organize more people within the DuPage County, Kane County space. And then as you organize, you realize that you are capable of running for office and that we've built the infrastructure in place to put you in a position of power so that folks like us have governing powers that we deserve and need to have not only because we have to get some shit done and this is the, the fucking system we're stuck in, but the other part is we have a right to be in positions of power and nobody can take that away from us. So that that's sort of me seeing this as like, I'm, I'm the state senator. I, I got to organize inside that halls of power and the governing power, but to also know that there needs to be this constant sense of organizing outside in, in districts and moving people, even people you would have not expected to be movable. Uh, Ash, you got anything you want to throw in? Yeah, so we're at this point like a few days out from this national election. People have very strong opinions about it in a variety of directions. Trump is already kind of like question has has been saying all these things, questioning the legitimacy of the election. You know, before we even we've even gotten there, and the Democratic ticket, like we have this guy that Wall Street's putting their money behind who drafted the crime bill and a black woman who got where she is politically by locking up other black and brown people, which is not great. Um, so <laughs> not great. <laughs> not great. Understatement. To say the not least, great. not great. <laughs> um, not a lot of great options um, when it comes to, you know, at the presidential level. And I think that is where we see like the most kind of apathy and just like anger, especially on the left around, around political engagement. So yeah, I'm curious to both of you, like, what do you think is going to happen? You know, the other pieces, like, you know, folks are preparing for a potential coup. Like, what if Trump doesn't leave office? What do our movements have to step up and do? Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm curious what both of y'all think, you know, is at stake and how do movements um, and, and people who are on the side of movements show up? Uh, this question is like a big question. It no pressure. It's on me a Just lot. Call it- 
and people are going to be listening after Tuesday also. So <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to make too hard of a prediction, but what I will say is I am extremely frightened about Trump's authoritarianism. I visited the Holocaust Museum because uh, I'm extremely worried about anti-Semitism and uh, xenophobia, and I think it's because the way different parts of hate, especially in America, show up are built on the idea or the sense and belief of control and who has control. And anti-Semitism has this particularly frightening sense that people think there's a secret cabal trying to control the world. And it's, and so I'm in the, you know, this is the Holocaust museum. Uh, and they're like, one side of the museum is dark and the other side of the museum is light, you know, so you have hope. And like, I stopped the tour guide and I was like, we can't operate from just hope. You got, you got to operate from struggle. There can be, a joyful sense of struggle. I don't want people to just live in the sadness of struggle where it becomes an anti-organizing mechanism. But the sense that the struggle we want is to build the thing that you're hoping for, right? Like, so, um, and you, this tour guide's like, who, who the fuck is this dude? You know, like, she had this look of like- are you, are you a state senator, sir? <laughs> yeah, I was like, I was like, yeah. I, you know, you're supposed to just be like, wow, this is so amazing and deep and blah, blah. And I'm like, no. All right. And we do like this whole tour, you know, at one point they show, you know, on Auschwitz and the, uh, you know, you, you, you Star of David, but you have different um, patches that you had to wear. One of them in that, in those patches is quote unquote repeat offender. Um, that's not a story or narrative that we've been told when we're younger, you know, about how basically the Nazis just killed a bunch of people who were incarcerated. Uh, and their story is not told because how America treats and how the world treats the incarcerated, right? So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm standing there. I'm like, you see that? And I'm pointing it out. But we get to this whole thing and, you know, we get to that poem. And I think a lot of people remember that poem of, uh, you know, when they came for such and such, when they came for such and such, and then they came for me, blah, blah, and there was nobody left for me. It's amazing how many people who trash the left, who go after us who like organize and build and fight back, cite that poem. Because the poem is telling you exactly who stood there and fought back against fascism because it, they first came for the communists and then they came for the socialists and then they came for the trade unionists and then they came for the Jews and then they come for me. It's literally telling you about a political and organizing and power apparatus that the fascist right took out one by one. And so when they, people who cite that poem and scream and talk about how worried they are about authoritarianism and fascism and then punch left, don't realize that they're literally hurting the people who are going to be on the front lines. No matter what, if something goes awry, the people that so many politicians, so many people I work with punched at and bemoaned for an entire summer are going to be out in the streets. You know, it's going to be the left. It's going to be the movement. And so I am very anxious about this. And I'm glad that, you know, if you compare where our movement is, was at 10 years ago to where we're at now, it's radically different, larger, it's more democratic than it's ever been. And that gives me some hope, right? But I know there's going to be a struggle and I know that this struggle is going to continue to last. And and even if Biden 
just beat an authoritarian fascist inspired Trump. Let's not even talk about the Biden presidency alone. Let's talk about the fact that the economy is shit and the Republicans aren't giving us a stimulus package and austerity is going to come at us. And what people don't understand, you know, a broader public doesn't seem to understand because we have to still educate them on this. This neoliberalism is a slow form of authoritarianism and austerity is that authoritarianism and that the idea is that you become gaslit. You know, when you want to save that program, they're going to ask you how to pay for it. And we're going to say Jeff Bezos has a bunch of money to get tax cuts, you know, with Amazon in the Chicago area. We can get that money from him. Either we're going to be on the front line and that there's going to be a bunch of people who try to dismiss us. And, you know, sometimes I say this and this sounds crazy. I run through my head and I say, which people would sell me out? Who would try to sell me to an authoritarian? And I, I, I... the fact that that even enters my head freaks me out. State Senator Robert Peters is too crazy and he's got to be taken out. is like a crazy thing to have in my head. But it sometimes comes in and I, I want to be, I want that to be proven wrong with this election and sometimes soon that we're not in that place. But, you know, right now it's a little anxious, but I know we're going to have our movement in the streets on Wednesday uh, if this doesn't go right. And, you know, to all the people who are shaming, to know that first they, they're going to come for that movement out there, but they will inevitably come for you and you might as well join. Jay, what do you want to, what do you want to add? That was beautiful, Robert. Thank you. I would just real quickly say, I always enter into spaces in terms of alliances and coalitions based on a profound love for my own people. But I will say that um, in the event that, there's a Trump victory. The kinds of alliances and coalitions that we build will require us to move beyond having shared analysis to having really good practice in terms of how we treat each other, show up for each other, and stick together. So I think that it's going to be how are we organized in our own communities, then how are we organized in alliance with others, what are the rules of engagement, and how do we really stick together and support each other will be critical. If there's a Biden victory, we gotta be vigilant. We know the history with some of those policies, particularly around mass incarceration. (laughs) And for me, uh, privatization of public schools. And for me also, housing policy at the federal level. Either way, we gotta be vigilant. (laughs) That's, That's just my take. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would just add in closing one, you know, thank you so much for your for your time and your thoughts. Uh, but to this point of, you know, we are we are creeping up on an election, like obviously there are a lot of unique threats that the Trump administration brings forth. Uh, but what I'm worried about is there being a Biden victory and there being a sigh of relief. One, just in terms of this point that we make that neoliberalism historically has aligned with fascism. And even when they're not aligned, it creates the conditions that allows fascism to grow. Uh, But I think more importantly, one of the things that really scares me about this moment is it feels like I'm seeing a a public say that fascism is only a problem when it's validated by the executive leader. And fascism as a political movement, as we talk about politics, exists, one, in other elected spaces, right? So people in Congress and people in state legislations uh, have been promoting fascism this entire time in American history. and that also, I think, even more prominently to the, the, the theme of this show of abolition democracy, I think we need to pay attention in ways that are not being taken seriously, that nearly every police department 
and certainly every police union has outwardly taken this stand in supporting white nationalism, supporting fascism, supporting Trumpism. Uh, and so if we actually want to get rid of fascism, we have to look at where its base is. Um, it's not just like folks with red hats. Um, it is it is in Congresses, it is in city legislatures, but most importantly, it is in military units, specifically police departments. Um, and so if we want to stop fascism, we're gonna have to continue organizing regardless of who the president is um, and be prepared for a slapdown or a counter insurgency if there is a democratic administration. So yeah, fascism ain't going away with Trump is really my big takeaway. Ashi, you got something? I mean, yeah, I'm I'm excited to see what will happen. Well, not excited to see what will happen. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I was about I'm to say, it's like you're on the edge of your seat. Well. Yeah. Um, not, not excited, <laughs> it's not quite the right word. Um, yeah, about what will happen. I think, um, yeah, I share that fear around like, if Biden, you know, wins, or even if Trump tries to like steal the election, and then is unsuccessful in doing that, that that will be seen as a win. And like, nah, we're still in like fighting the like, he is the guy that built, you know, like the machines that made a lot of the things that we're fighting today, um, even possible when it comes to, you know, mass incarceration, when it comes to the deportation machine that Trump has been able to take advantage of with all that, um, and is, is supported by like financial elite and all that, um, that are, that are very much interested in making money off of what is going to be a dire economic situation for most people in this country that, that we're moving into, um, and already, already has been. So regardless, I think it's important that, you know, the narrative isn't that we're like saving democracy but we're we're resisting fascism and still got to fight neoliberalism regardless. And the work that we do the rest of the time and not in the electoral space is trying to create democracy, not save it. Does that ring true? I said it a little. I said yeah, it with like absolutely. a certainty and then I was like, absolutely. oh, <laughs> No, no. Be certain. <laughs> um, beautiful. Does any of y'all have anything you want to add before we uh, before we get out of here? No, let's get out of here. I'm excited. We just did a whole election year thing and like kind of didn't talk about the presidency until the last just snuck it in at the end. Yeah. Just so I'm really excited <laughs> how we pulled that off. And I'm very grateful uh to Asha for being oh, on the team. Man. She's like, you know, uh, you know, an official, but if still unofficial ergo like member now. So that's been really great. And then all of our guests, this has been a special evening tonight with Robert Peters, Rich Wallace, and a special, special shout out to Jay Travis, not only for all your work and your legacy, uh, but also just, you know, we got to shout out Black women. You showed up early and was first and stayed the latest. So I just got to <laughs> I gotta shout you out for just being super present and holding us down. And a big thank you to Black Youth Project for being our partner in this series, as well as our BYP Spotlight. You can hear those episodes um, as well as... 260 plus Ergo episodes uh, at ErgoRadio.com. Just search A-I-R-G-O on your podcast app. Jay, is there any way that you would like you or your work to be found in the ways you want to be found? In terms of my role in in my my job, I'm co-director at uh, Midwest Academy. But in terms of my people, I'm um, Coco to the world blow up. So if you find yourself (laughs) (laughs) in any way to folks at Coco, they can tell you how to find me. And knowing the consistency of Coco, it might be Coco even after the world blows up. Um, <laughs> if there's anyone who's going to be there. Exactly. 55 years strong. We hold Coco's cleaning up the world. <laughs> Ash, any way you want to be, any way you want to be found, anything you want to uplift around the campaign or anything like that? You know, 
email your older person, tell them to defund the Chicago Police Department. Um, we're still in this in this budget fight. It has not been finalized. Um, so yeah, that's one way folks can support the work in the world. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm on I'm on Twitter at Asha Hoesis. You can find me find me there. We also wanted to give a big shout out to the Hoodwazee for being our partner for this third unelectable and streaming it on their Facebook page. Make sure you check out uh, the Hoodwazee archive, which has incredible conversations going back years. Um, around block optic, current events, and politics. Dame, anything else you want to throw in? Are you ready to to go collapse after talking for two hours? Nah, let's get up out of here. I am I am grateful. I love all y'all. I love my people. This this has made me like present. You know, this is a really discouraging political time. Uh, but moments and conversations like this give me uh, a lot of hope and fortitude moving forward. I feel like I feel like we are a body and we're moving together. Absolutely. As I said, at Ergo Radio, I'm at Ergo Kiss. I'm at Damon underscore AF. And we'll be back continuing to showcase the folks reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative. Much love to the people. Peace. Fuck Donald Trump. Fuck Donald Trump. Yeah, nigga, fuck Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah, fuck Donald Trump. Yeah.